Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, Nahum, and by the way, we're going to be having communion at the end of the service, but uh, Nahum here is a three-chapter book, and uh, we, of course, did the first chapter last week. Nahum, the entire book, is basically a prophecy regarding the destruction of Nineveh, Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And uh, with the destruction of Nineveh, it also, it basically describes the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. Because once Nineveh, the capital fell, the, the, the empire basically crumbled as a result of that. Now, Nineveh, it probably shouldn't be the first time you've heard of Nineveh, because Jonah, we did Jonah a few weeks back, and Jonah was a prophet to Nineveh. In fact, he was sent to Nineveh, and uh, his ministry... Although God sent him there to proclaim judgment, it was really revealing God's grace because Nineveh, the people from the king all the way down to the servants, everybody repented of their sin. But the problem was their repentance didn't last very long. And soon Assyria had returned to its wickedness. A couple, two, maybe three decades later, after Jonah had been to uh, uh, Nineveh, God used the Assyrians to chasten the northern kingdom of Israel by taking them into captivity. But see, Assyria would continue to grow more and more wicked. And uh, about 150 years later, Nahum is told to write this prophecy regarding Nineveh. And this time, rather than revealing God's grace, Nahum, the book of Nahum, really reveals God's wrath against Nineveh the nation. Again, it had been about 150 years after Jonah's ministry. You know, in the beginning in chapter 1, and we looked at it last week, uh, it says in verse 3, the Lord is slow to wrath. And it is true. In fact, he had waited 150 years. But by now, their judgment, of course, was right because they hadn't repented. Um, But it also says in verse 3 that God is great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. And so chapter 1 was basically the declaration that God is going to overthrow Nineveh. Chapters 2 and chapters 3, well, chapters 2 is how is God going to throw, overthrow Nineveh, and chapter 3 is why is God going to overthrow Nineveh. And we're going to look at both of those chapters this morning. And so first, how is God going to overthrow Nineveh? So beginning with verse 2, uh, excuse me, beginning with chapter 2, verse 1, it says, He who scatters has come up before your face, Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily, for the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. So God's warning here to Nineveh, he who scatters has come up before your face. It really could be translated, God's battle axe is before your face, Nineveh. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 20, the Lord is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He was, the, he was the ruler of Babylon. And in that chapter, Jeremiah prophesies to Nebuchadnezzar and says, You are my battle axe and weapons for war. For with you I will break the nations in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. 
And now God is announcing to Nineveh, who really Nineveh was a very cruel, and we'll look at that in a little bit, a very cruel empire. They crushed every kingdom in their path. And God says, hey, I've sent my battle axe to crush you, and I'm going to do it openly right before your very face. Now, in this case, God's battle axe is going to be the combined armies of the Medes and the Babylonians that will take down Nineveh. You know, um, God had used, like I mentioned earlier, God had used the Assyrians not to crush, but to chasten his people. But Assyria went way too far. They didn't fear God and they didn't honor him. And in fact, they even mocked God and grew increasingly wicked and increasingly arrogant. And the destroying army of Assyria, they had laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel, but now God was going to restore those people. God was going to bring them back, to bring their glory back. And so in verse 3, now he's describing how Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Verse 3, the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. This is a very vivid and a very accurate description of the overthrow of Nineveh. And it was prophesied about 26 years before the actual destruction of Nineveh took place. What happened was, according to historians, the armies of the Medes and the Babylonians, they surrounded Nineveh. And they sieged the city, and the siege lasted for two years. But Nineveh had, it was a very wealthy, a very fortified city. They had a river flowing in it. I mean, it was, they, they were able to kind of sit it out. And so for two years, that siege lasted, and, and they basically sat it out. The, the armies couldn't get beyond the walls in, and they had enough food, they had enough supplies that they could, they could sit for basically two years being surrounded by their enemies, and nothing would happen to them. So Nineveh was able to survive that siege for, during, for two years, and it would seem that they would be able to outlast the siege indefinitely. But you know, God commands not only man, but God even commands nature, and he caused the Tigris and the Kors River, K-H-O-R-S, not K-C-O-O-R-S, but K-H-O-R-S, the river, uh, to swell its banks during a very uh, heavy rainstorm, and the rushing waters basically broke through one of the gates of the city, and that water started rapidly eroding away at the foundation of the wall, and a portion of the wall basically collapsed. And it left a gaping breach that the armies of the Medes and the Babylonians were able to flood into the city with soldiers and chariots and cause their destruction. Well, their destruction had been decreed by the Lord 26 years prior, and it was going to happen. God says, it is decreed. They thought they were impregnable from, from attack by human means. You know, everything that they had done to, to fortify themselves. And here God used a natural disaster to bring down the great Assyrian army. Basically, water, flowing water is what he did. And the survivors were led away 
as captives from the city, but as we're seeing, as we'll see in a few moments, there weren't a whole lot of survivors. There were a lot more dead than survivors. Verse 8. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. It says Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. And the city of Nineveh was basically surrounded by walls right up to the edge of canals and rivers. And it gave it the appearance that it was an island fortified with like moats all around it, water all around it. It was just like this island in the middle of of all this water. And Nineveh was a stronghold to its inhabitants, but no longer. Now the inhabitants were fleeing for their lives. You know, in every kingdom that the Assyrians conquered and crushed, they pillaged and they brought all that stolen wealth inside of the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was fabulously wealthy as a result. Later on, uh, uh, this library was discovered in the ruins of Nineveh and this clay tablet. It was written, it was in a library of King Azurbanipal, who was the, I probably didn't pronounce it right, but he was the grandson of Sennacherib. And he wrote this. This is their own writing. He says, The Assyrian royalty is perhaps the most luxurious of our century. Its victories and conquests, uninterrupted for 100 years, have enriched it with the spoil of 20 peoples. Sargon, that's one of their kings, has taken what remained to the Hittites. Sennacherib overcame Chaldea, and the treasures of Babylon were transferred to his coffers. Esharhaddon and Asurbanipal himself have pillaged Egypt and her great cities, Says, Memphis, and Thebes of the Hundred Gates. Now foreign merchants flock into Nineveh, bringing with them all the most valuable productions from all countries, gold and perfume from South Arabia and the Chaldean Sea, Egyptian linen and glasswork, carved enamels, goldsmiths' work, Tin, silver, Phoenician purple, cedar wood from Lebanon, unassailable by worms, furs and icon, excuse me, furs and iron, 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 (laughs) iron, (laughs) from Asia Minor and Armenia. I don't know why I had a problem with that. Um, But this is what the guy's describing their kingdom, the the wealth and everything that they took in spoils. And uh, it was all a result of their invading different countries and all these wars and so it was, it was all stolen wealth. Well, the Bible here says that they would be depleted of all that treasure, and all that they were left with was emptiness, fear, and pain. You know, the Bible warns you and I as believers to be careful what we put our trust in. Proverbs 23, 5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You know, we can exert so much energy and time trying to gain something that really in reality it could vanish overnight. The same is true in our own lives as Christians, right? Paul was writing to Corinth, the Christians in Corinth. He's telling them how Jesus Christ is the believer's foundation in life and then what you build on that foundation, it will matter in the end. 
you know, what you and I have expended our energy and time focusing on this life, it's going to be judged. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as uh, so through fire. You know, are you and I, what are we expending our time and exerting our energy on? Are we doing that on things that are going to last, things that are eternal, or things that eventually will burn away, that won't matter for eternity, wood, hay, and stubble? So it's really a warning for us as well. Well, continuing on here, verse 11. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Now, if you think of a lion, a lion is basically the king of the jungle, right? Other than man, it really doesn't have any natural predators. They're basically the top of their food chain, and so the lions described here in these verses, it's really a picture of pride and lack of fear. The Assyrians didn't fear anybody. They were the most ferocious. They were the top of the food chain, so to speak. And God is telling Nineveh in the day of their destruction, hey, where's your pride now? You know, the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the things that God absolutely hates is human pride. We're told throughout the Bible to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. But the thing is, if we don't humble ourselves like Nineveh didn't, God has a way of humbling us himself. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. You know, the Bible tells you and I, and what a, what a comfort it is, but the Bible tells you and I, the believer in Jesus Christ, man, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's, some, that's some, a truth that you and I need to just cling to. Man, if God's for us, it doesn't matter. No one can be against us. But on the flip side of that, if God is against someone like he was against a wicked and an unrepentant Nineveh, who can be for them? It's a terrible thing for God to say, I'm against you. And although God was using the Medes and the Babylons as his battle axe, God says, I am against you. I will destroy you. God's taking crazy. I'm going to do this. And God says, the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. And I think what he's specifically speaking about is the Rabshakeh. The Rabshakeh, they were the, the, like the ambassadors, the envoys for the king of Assyria. They would go to all these other countries and, and they would stand there and tell them to surrender before the Assyrians would go in and, and, and wipe them out. They tried to get them to come out of their, out of their siege and stuff. And uh, that happened actually with Judah. The Rabshakeh was sent with the armies of, Sir, of, of Assyria to go and surround Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah was the king at the time. And the Rabshakeh, in, in, in boastfulness, he says, 
and he spoke it in the, in the hearing of all the people. He says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He basically was saying, Hey, don't trust Hezekiah. Don't trust the Lord. And then a little later on, he went on to say, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So the Rabshakeh just boasting before the Lord said, God can't deliver you. There's no one greater than the king of Assyria. That's basically what he was saying. You know, Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty six, he said, but I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You've got to be careful what we say. One of the ingredients for national disaster, and that's basically what this chapter, this, this, this title of this message, I didn't forgot to mention that, but it's really a recipe for natu- national, not natural, a recipe for national disaster. And there's different ingredients. And one of the ingredients for national disaster is arrogant human pride. Man's trust in himself, in his abilities, and in his wealth. That's one of the ingredients. And so chapters 1 and 2 describe what God will do to Nineveh and how he will do it. And chapter 3 now describes why God will destroy Nineveh. Look at verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. Now, according to Bible, uh, Haley's Bible Handbook, says this, Assyrian policy was to deport conquered peoples to other lands, to destroy their sense of nationalism and make them more easily subject. Assyrians were great warriors. Most nations, then, were robber nations. The Assyrians seem to have been the worst of them all. They builded their state on the loot of other peoples. They practiced cruelty. They skinned their prisoners alive or cut off their hands, feet, noses, ears, or put out their eyes or pulled out their tongues and made mounds of human skulls all to inspire terror. They were the terrorists of their day. Another ingredient, I believe, for national disaster is the glorification of gratuitous violence. Look around our culture today, man. Violence is just glorified in the media. Verse 2, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. You look at the wording there in chapter 4. It speaks of the harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries. When you look at that verse, it's really speaking about fornication, prostitution, adultery, literal sexual immorality. And Assyria was, it had, it was, you know, sexually immoral. The last king of Assyria, according to Greek historians, was very effeminate. It's kind of funny that Dan, or Chad mentioned the, the, what do you call them? The dual showers? Whatever you call them. 
<laughs> co-ed showers. Oh, yeah, no, not co-ed showers. <laughs> well, that's pretty bad, too, actually. Um, but according to Greek historians, the king, the last king of Assyria was very effeminate. He used to dress himself in women's clothes and practice homosexuality. I Man, that's how bad they had gotten. Another ingredient for national disaster is the acceptance practice and promotion of sexual immorality, and in particular, homosexuality. You know, it's interesting I mentioned sorcery, because sorcery in the Bible is connected both to witchcraft and to drug use. In fact, the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmaceutics. Another ingredient for national disaster is the widespread acceptance and use of illicit drugs. These are, the, these are the things, when it's rampant, when it's accepted, and when it's widespread, this is what brings down nations. Another theme here in verse 4 is seduction. You know, because Nineveh was fabulously wealthy, nations were willing to look past the wickedness of the Assyrians and to trade with them for the sake of greed. The lure of commerce with Nineveh made them blind. They were willing to trade with the devil because of their greed. It was a seduction. And because Nineveh was a very powerful empire, they were seductive in another way, the seduction of power and protection, because many nations appealed to the Assyrians for protection. In fact, even Judah, the nation of Judah, was enticed by the power of Assyria. The Syrians, not the Assyrians, but the Syrians and the northern kingdom of Israel, they were conspiring to attack Jerusalem. And King Ahaz appealed to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, for protection against the Syrians in the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's interesting. You know, Nineveh actually was a very, very ancient city. Its founding goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. It was built by Nimrod. Nimrod was actually the grandson of Ham, who was the son of Noah. So he was actually the great-grandson of Noah. And Nimrod, in the Bible, he was described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it doesn't mean like he was like this great guy with his bow and arrow. You know, he could, he could shoot them all down. It means, it implies anyways, that he was a hunter of men's souls away from the Lord. And with the Tower of Babel and all the things, it just, it's, he was basically the first type or first picture of Antichrist in the Bible. And you see, the Assyrians, they attracted nations to her for different reasons, for trade or for, for uh, protection, whatever. But once they were lured to Assyria, they became entrapped by Assyria. You know, King Ahaz, he did receive protection from Tiglath-Pileser, but it cost a lot. In order to pay for that protection, he stripped some of the gold from the temple. And after he received that protection, he ended up having to pay yearly tribute, which is basically tax, to the king of Assyria. This was extortion on a national scale. Nineveh embraced the worst form of idolatry, and that is the idolatry of self. The idolatry of self, and it promises freedom, but in the end, it's a lie. Like what Albert Barnes says, false freedom is the deepest and most abject slavery. All these things, all these lures of Assyria, it was all an entrapment. It all brought those that fell for it into deeper slavery. Sexual immorality, you know, it promises freedom. 
It promises freedom from moral restraints. Hey, you can marry anyone you want. You can, you can be with anyone you want. There's nothing. If you're committed, you know, whatever. It's up to you to do. That's the idolatry of self. And sexual immorality promises freedom from moral restraints. But in the end, it turns people into slaves of ever-deepening perversion. And many times it also results in sexually transmitted diseases. There's a price to pay for that freedom. It's a false freedom. Illicit drug use. Man, it promises the freedom from the stress and pressures of life, right? Just get away. You can, you can take a trip and not even leave the farm, you know, type of a deal. Well, there used to be a song. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, anyways. It's the generation I grew up in. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, illicit drug, drug use, it promises a freedom of a type. But what it ends up doing is it ends up turning people into slaves of addiction, People who are willing to compromise and sacrifice everything and anything to satisfy that craving. It's slavery. And like sexual immorality, it also many times results in disease and in death. Not only are nations sold through the seduction of the idolatry of self, but as he mentions here, families are sold into it too. Families are destroyed when men and women worship themselves because that's what the idolatry of self is i'm the one that makes i'm i'm king i'm the one that makes the decisions it's all about me it's what do i want how do i feel it's all worshiping ourselves and marriages and families are destroyed by the idolatry of self sexual immorality it can destroy a marriage and a family drugs it destroys families it destroys children the pursuit of wealth the pursuit of power, all those things that, that Assyria promised, those are all things that can enslave and entrap people. And they can ruin families as well. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? This is the second time that God says, I'm against you. Have you ever had your parents tell you when they were scolding you as kids, if I have to repeat myself, you're really in trouble? Well, it's the same concept, only it's that much more severe. If God repeats himself, it's serious business. And this is the second time God says to Nineveh, I'm against you. He says, I am going to expose your shame and nakedness. I am going to make you so vile and so reprehensible that no one is going to cry over your demise. No one was going to weep over the destruction of Assyria. Certainly not Israel because of the cruelty of the Assyrians. Verse 8, are you better than no Amon? that was situated by the river, that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Ethi and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubin were your helpers, yet she carried away, excuse me, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. No Amon, was the ancient city of Thebes. And like Nineveh, it was surrounded by water. It was, it was in the Nile River Delta. And so it had these rivers and tributaries all around it, canals around it, and, it, and to the back of it, it had the Mediterranean Sea. It was known as the city of a hundred gates. So it sounds like it was very well fortified with water all around, just like Nineveh 
well-protected and seemingly invincible. It even had uh, allies, Ethiopia, Egypt, Lydia, and Libya. They were all the allies of Thebes. And yet, even with allies, even with all that strength, they were powerless to defend themselves from, guess who? The Assyrians. The Assyrians wiped them out. They destroyed thieves, Thebes. They took captives. They mercilessly murdered their children. And God says to Nineveh, look what you did to Thebes. Are you any better than them? Nineveh was going to get what they dished out. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 2, with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. How you treat others, it's going to come back to you. David said of God, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. Verse 11, you also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. Now, according to the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, I call him stinky, um, but basically, I just, I don't know, it's a tough time, tough way to pronounce, but tough word to pronounce. Um, He's one of the Greek historians, and he writes that on the night of Nineveh's destruction, the kings and the nobles were drunk when that wall collapsed and the the, uh, enemies were able to come in. Verse 12, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. eater. See, their strongholds, what they trusted in, is like a ripe fig. And you get this idea of a a fruit that's on a tree that, man, you just shake the branch or the wind blows, and it's it's so ripe it just drops to the ground. You don't have to pull it. There's no force or anything. The wind barely shakes a branch and the figs drop. And in other words, God's saying to Nineveh, man, you guys are ripe for judgment. You're going to fall. Verse 13, surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the, bar- the bars of your gates. Now the fact that he says your, the people in your midst are women, either it's referring to the character of the men who are going to turn cowardly during the invasion, or the effeminate character of the men associated with homosexuality. And it's probably, to be honest with you, it's probably both. Because the Greek historians tell us when the invaders were entering the city, the king went and hid himself in the palace, and he locked himself in there, and he set fire to the palace, and he ended up dying by suicide in the flames as a coward. Verse 14, draw your water for the siege, fortify your strongholds, Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. This is basically God's way. And it's funny because in the Bible, God sometimes mocks people. And here God is mocking, uh, giving a mocking exhortation to Nineveh to go ahead and try to defend yourselves. In Psalm 37, verse 12, it says, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 15, the second half of it says, Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which came in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are, where they are is not known. 
And here God is comparing the Assyrian army to a plague of locusts, an army of locusts, more numerous than could be counted. And and a locust invasion, when they come in and they wipe out crops, they leave basically widespread devastation in their path. I mean, there's nothing left when a locust invasion comes through. And those swarms of locusts, they come suddenly. I mean, it's just like there's a cloud and now there's locusts. They devour everything. And God says, you're just like those locusts. Oh, you're powerful. You destroy everything in your path. You're many. There's, there's a lot of you. You come suddenly and rush in on people. But just as fast as you rush in and, dis- and just as fast you're going to disappear. Verse 18 Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. This was literally fulfilled. Any trace of the the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian people pretty much disappeared so completely that only a couple hundred years later, people would come through that area, and no one even knew where the city had stood. In fact, it got to the point where people started doubting the Bible. They said, there is no Nineveh. It's just a a fictitious city. And the Assyrian people, we have no evidence of the Assyrian people. And for centuries, people started saying, oh, the Bible's just, you know, it's it's not true. It's just fictitious. Until the mid-1800s, there was an archaeologist digging around over in Iraq, and he ended up digging up the remains or discovered the remains of Nineveh. And they, they've since uncovered it. They've uncovered things like the Library of Stone Tablets, which I read from that one king wrote. Um, and now we have all kinds of information about them. But for so many thousands of years, they basically, it's like they didn't even exist. This was God, what God's saying here it was literally fulfilled as God said it. Verse 19, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? You know when God says to a nation, "Your injury has no healing; your wound is severe." He's basically saying, "Man, all hope is lost." That's that's a severe thing when God proclaims something like that to a nation. So what are some of the ingredients for a national disaster? What's a recipe? Well, first of all, like we mentioned, human pride, gratuitous uh, glorification of gratuitous violence, acceptance, practice, and promotion of sexual immorality, and in particular, homosexuality, widespread use of illicit drugs, and basically, the idolatry of self. These are all the recipes that will bring down a nation. You know, I look at our nation today, and I wonder, are we like those overripe figs, just, just ready for judgment? Are we ripe for judgment? Well, time will tell, of course. But you know that recipe for a national disaster is the same recipe for a personal disaster. It doesn't just affect nations. People are made up, or nations are made up of people. These things are not just the things that will bring a nation down, but they'll bring down an individual as well. You know, you look at the, the nation of Nineveh. They had hardened their hearts to the Lord and God was patient, gave them 150 years to repent, and they had not. And now He declares, "Your wounds incurable, and I'm, I have to destroy you." You know, for you and I as believers, when Jesus ascended into heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, I mean, he's, he's a comforter. 
He's that still, small voice that speaks to us. He warns us when we're going into sin, when we're heading down the wrong path. He encourages us when we need encouragement. He instructs us and leads us in the way we should go. And if you are here today and you've been seduced by the idolatry of self in all its many different forms, the seduction of wealth, the seduction of power, Maybe you're trusting in your own abilities or you've built up your own stronghold of your own wealth or possessions, whatever it is. Anything that's not God himself, that's idolatry. And it's the idolatry of self. And those things will bring you down as well as it brought down nations. My prayer for you this morning is that, you know, that you listen to the Holy Spirit. And if you recognize in this any seduction that you've been falling for, my prayer is that you'll turn back to him and that you'll, you'll come back to him who's the healer of souls. And so I want to pray for each one of us this morning, and then we're going to go ahead and have communion. Well, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. And Father, I thank you for the example that we have of Nineveh, Lord, a nation that... Uh, you you were so gracious in not destroying them when Jonah was sent. Lord, you gave them 150 years, and yet, Lord, they returned to their wickedness. Lord, they ignored you. They drifted from you, far from you. And, Lord, they became hardened by sin and the deceitfulness of sin. And, Lord, they became to the point where there was their wound was incurable. Father, I thank you for that lesson this morning. Father, I thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit, Lord, that he is dwelling in each one of the believers, in each one of us this morning um, who have a relationship with you. And that, Lord, he speaks, but it's a still small voice. And I pray, Father, that we might quiet ourselves to hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to each one of us. And, Father, I pray for anybody here who's been seduced by the idolatry of self. Lord, it's, it's a seduction. It looks appealing. And yet, Lord, in the end, it enslaves us. And so, Father, I just pray for my brothers and my sisters this morning. I thank you for the warning and the reminder that we have this morning. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we might heed your Holy Spirit, Lord, in, in whatever way you're speaking to us this morning, and that we might be obedient to follow you, to set aside any idols, Lord, that are not of you. And may we completely devote ourselves to you this morning. So I thank you for that reminder, Lord, and I thank you for these people this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.